Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and it's delightful to be back in one of the co-hosting chairs today with the lovely and excellent Andy Alexander. It's very nice to hear your voice again. We've had such a great opportunity to speak with each one of the people that's doing the interviews each week and get just that little bit of summary. And we hope that listeners are really enjoying that encapsulation of what comes. Because sometimes a 30 or a 45 minute episode, you really want to know what the investment is there. And today we have a doozy for you. Andy, can you tell us about your interview with Matt Sheedy? Yes. Today, I was speaking with Dr. Matt Sheedy about his recent book, Owning the Secular, Religious Symbols, Culture Wars, Western Fragility. And in this book, Sheedy explores the constructions of religion and secularism, of gender, of atheism, particularly with regard to constructions and representations of Islam in the public sphere in the post-9-11 era. He also provides a a great critical framework for unpacking those classifications, as well as examining how and when issues are framed as cultural versus religious, particularly in relation to culture wars issues that we saw. So we cover quite a lot of ground in this episode, and I hope that everyone will enjoy it. We're looking forward to it. These terms and trying to understand where they come from is so important to the critical apparatus of studying religion, and I hope that you enjoy it. Let's take a listen. Hello, and welcome back, listeners. I am Andy Alexander, and joining me here today is Dr. Matt Sheedy, who is a visiting professor in the Department of North American Studies at the University of Bonn, Germany. His research interests include critical social theory, theories of secularism and atheism, as well as representations of Christianity, Islam, and Native American traditions in popular and political culture. Now, I know that this is not your first time joining us here at the RSP, but it has been a little while since your last appearance, so we are very glad to have you back. And today, we are here to talk about your recent book that was published earlier this year with Rutledge. Owning the Secular, Religious Symbols, Culture Wars, Western Fragility. First, congratulations on the new book, and thanks for joining me here today. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. To kick things off, I would really love if you could first start by talking to us about the title of your book, Owning the Secular, and how it is you understand that phrasing and the work that you see it doing for this particular project? Uh, Yeah, thanks for that question. When I came up with the title Owning the Secular, uh, Culture Wars, Religious Symbols, and and Western Fragility, I was doing at least two things uh, with that title. So the first was signaling that both religion and the secular are contested concepts, uh, they're concepts that have an ancient uh, lineage. You know, we could go back to you know, Cicero in ancient Rome. We could look at medieval definitions. We could look at post-enlightenment definitions, definitions that align with uh, the nation state as we know it, particularly in the Euro-Western part of the world. And think about the ways in which the secular is always constructed in relation to the concept of, of religion and, and vice versa. And there's a lot of debates in the study of religion uh, when it comes to deconstructing these concepts. So picking them apart, thinking about them in context, how they relate to uh, legal definitions, how uh, politicians use them in their rhetoric, for example. 
But on the other hand, there's also a critique of that deconstructive uh, approach that sometimes goes too far and doesn't necessarily think about how these terms function uh, in the real world. And so a lot of scholars will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm using a, a stipulative definition and here, here is how I'm laying out religion or here, here is how I'm laying out the secular for the purposes of, of this particular step. And some scholars do that uh, uh, to a useful effect, uh, others maybe not so much. And so when I talk about owning the secular in that first sense, what I'm trying to signal is that there's always this sort of tension or gap between scholars who are able to own their terms and how they use it in particular ways versus those who don't necessarily think critically uh, about that. The second idea of owning the secular, and this really ties in with the part of the uh, the subtitle I have with culture wars uh, and Western fragility. I drew on that term in particular from a lot of the, the lingo or rhetoric that we find online, where if you go on YouTube, for example, and you look at popular debates, they'll often be framed around this idea that, you know, someone is owning someone else, someone is destroying someone else. And here the idea is a very strategic uh, idea where the goal is not to understand uh, what people are saying, where they're coming from, or if we're talking about scholarship, the goal is not to unpack the terms, the methods, the theories that we're dealing with. It's just to be able to use the rhetoric in a way that serves someone's interests. And so those are the two senses of the term owning that I tried to signal uh, in my book. And I guess the last thing I'll say about that for the time being is that I was really interested in thinking about the secular on three basic levels. So the first is the idea of how the secular gets used by, by nation state. The concept of secularism is something that has relationship to state power. Uh, it also has a relationship to certain principles, principles that people might hold, whether they identify as religious or not religious. They often enumerate secular values in particular ways. And the last sense of secular has to do with secular to, to be secular as a form of identity. And in my third chapter, where I look at uh, ex-Muslim uh, identities, I very much dig into this idea as to uh, what the relationship is between self-described uh, ex-Muslims and how that relates to their identity as secularists or defining themselves uh, as secular. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I know that you talk a bit about culture wars in this part of the book as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work on that? Yeah, sure. The second part of my, my first chapter, um, which deals with different concepts of, of, of secularism, the second part talks about culture wars and the role of culture wars uh, in contemporary societies, particularly in online spaces. And so to touch on a few influential flashpoints, um, you know, I mentioned how, for example, in the late 1980s, there were a series of discussions about what is the Western canon or what is the, the canon that we ought to be thinking about and learning more broadly. And it was during this time that a lot of disciplines, women and gender studies, cultural studies, queer studies, and so forth, started to challenge this idea of a Western canon. And as some of your readers might be familiar, uh, a fairly controversial and widely read book from, I believe, 1987 uh, was uh, Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. And he was very centrally preoccupied with this, this idea that 
the Western canon is important, it needs to be preserved, and that these trends to destabilize the Western canon were, were a threat to our, our values, even our, our, our civilization, uh, if you want to take it that far. And so I, I find that historical or literary touch point really, really interesting for thinking about how the issues that we tend to think about and associate today with culture wars really have quite a long history. Uh, and in fact, we can go back much, much further as, for example, Stephen Prothrow does uh, in his book, dealing with uh, the culture wars, he goes back to Thomas Jefferson and uh, um, prohibition uh, and debates over Mormonism in the 19th century. So, you know, you could you could certainly go go back in time. But I, I was more interested in this this sort of transition point in the late 1980s, early 1990s, where, for example, uh, talk really began surrounding this idea that there was a clash of civilizations. That term was coined by. Bernard Lewis, in his essay for The Atlantic called The Roots of Muslim Rage in 1990, and then it was popularized by Samuel Huntington in a 1993 essay called The Clash of Civilizations with a question mark. 1996, he turned that into a book. It became a very, very influential way of thinking about contemporary conflicts, this idea that there are different and competing civilizations that are incompatible, and it was after or I should say in the lead up to the war in Iraq in particular in 2001, that we really saw this, this concept become, uh, um, or, or I should say, enter into to public discourse. Uh, and it became reproduced over and over again, particularly in relation to Islam, and that Islam did not embody the same kind of Western liberal secular values that we ought to be exporting uh, around the world, or so the idea went. And so I, I kind of set the table uh, with those two pieces, both in academia and in sort of popular uh, political culture when it comes to this idea of what is the West, uh, what is the canon, uh, and what is Western civilization. And you can probably anticipate part of my subtitle, the idea of Western fragility is uh, trying to nod in certain ways to this very narrow discourse that is often very protectionist and doesn't necessarily uh, allow a lot of voices to be heard, despite its claims to do precisely that. And that is, of course, one of the claims of secularism, this idea that is that is neutral, that is open and inclusive and so forth. And so I also talk about in that section, and I, I focus on um, uh, a number of theorists, one of which is uh, Angela Nagel in her 2017 book, Kill All Normies. And one of the things that she talks about is how um, recent online controversies, and here she's talking about the sort of the, the context of, of Donald Trump coming to power. She says that a lot of recent online uh, controversies and forms of rhetoric date back to the 1960s, in particular in these cultures of transgression, where transgressing social norms was elevated to a very, very high ideal. But whereas in the 1960s, according to Nagel and many others as well, the modes of transgressing the dominant culture uh, were often done in such a way to push back against racism or, or, or sexism or, 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 or homophobia or so, or, you know, um, Eurocentric points of view and so forth. The politics of transgression that has really emerged in the Trump era for Nagel as cultivated on sites like 4chan, 8chan, Reddit, uh, and so forth is one that is sort of promoting transgression for transgression's sake. Uh, and a lot of it is, is, is tied to this feeling that the dominant culture has become too politically correct, 
that free speech is being censored, and that transgressing against that social order is an end in and of itself. And so part of what Nichols grapples with and part of what, what I'm grappling with is how relatively new online cultures that in the Trump era seem to migrate into the mainstream in, in any number of ways are very much informed in, 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 in certain key ways by this idea of transgression for transgression's sake. Um, or if you like to phrase it a little bit differently, they are using that idea of transgressing against uh, uh, political correctness and valorizing free speech uh, as a mask or as a way to legitimate uh, their resistance to what are very rapidly changing social norms, where through social media, uh, many voices who were previously marginalized or excluded altogether uh, are now able to enter into the fray and really change the way that we think about you know, shared values, shared ideologies, shared goals, and so forth. And so setting the table in that way is my attempt to enter into this terrain of online discourse, online ideology, that I argue really complicates how we understand the secular, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, the way that states uh, try to enforce certain modes of secularism, but also how certain groups and individuals will understand or use this term. And that's something I can get into a little later when it comes to the question of uh, movement atheism. Yeah. You know, I would also be interested to hear a little bit more about what it was that led you to focus on this particular area and put these different aspects into conversation with one another. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess it gives me a, a bit of a chance to to unpack some of my my formative uh, uh, influences. Um, yeah, without giving you a whole life story here, uh, I, I guess I will say that my undergraduate career uh, really coincided with the September 11th attacks, uh, which was a really influential, formative um, event for me in thinking about the study of religion, culture, politics, society, all these sorts of things. And it also coincided with uh, the rise of a new atheist movement, or at least when I was, when I was doing my master's work. And so those, those two things feature prominently uh, in this book and have been things that I've really been thinking about for a long time. You talk a bit about how the secular relates to veiling controversies in countries like Canada and France. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how the veil relates to the secular. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess a good place to start is to talk about um, what I refer to as the, the, the niqab affair uh, in 2015 in a Canadian context, which was really formative for me in, in, in digging deeper into these issues. So as maybe some of your listeners might be aware, there was a very, very interesting controversy uh, throughout 2015 uh, in Canada, starting in late January and going all the way until the end of the year. Uh, during that time, there was a, um, a federal election where the nearly 10-year reign of conservative Prime Minister uh, Stephen Harper was contested and eventually won by the current Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau. And Harper, throughout his uh, uh, long tenure uh, as Prime Minister, um, decided to 
higher political campaign strategists that very much centered culture war issues. And seeing as he was down in the polls, uh, again, almost going into year 10, uh, him and his strategists decided to focus on a very, very little known event that had occurred in late January 2015, where a woman named Zunira Isak, a then permanent resident of Pakistani heritage, um, fought to challenge the government on a little-known law dating back to 2011 that banned niqab-wearing women from wearing their kneecaps, uh, kneecaps rather, uh, during oath-taking ceremonies for Canadian citizenship. And so Harper made a big speech in the House of Commons. He called the niqab anti-women. He was saying this is not part of our Canadian values. And people latched onto it uh, immediately. I mean, symbolically, you can you can see how rich this is, right? A, a, a swearing-in ceremony for Canadian citizenship, tying that with Canadian values. It's very uh, effective, uh, rhetorically speaking. And so Justin Trudeau, the leader of the Liberal Party at the time, came out and said that this was xenophobic, that this was racist. Um, but in particular, he leaned into this idea that um, women including niqab-wearing women, have the right to choose. Uh, and the states should not intervene in such a way it is you know, ultimately up to uh, a woman to choose what she wants to do uh, with her body. Now, you know, putting aside you know, whether we, we agree or, or disagree with these ideas, what really interested me about this is that this controversy that started uh, in early 2015 was arguably the single uh, biggest uh, campaign focus throughout uh, 2015. It was constantly uh, being debated by politicians and pundits and media. And it was the type of thing that was uh, jarring for me in particular as a scholar of religion, because prior to this time, no one really talked about the kneecap. It didn't come up at all, but all of a sudden, everyone had an opinion on it. And it was the thing that we had to concern ourselves with. And so in one sense, it was very much you know, a manufactured culture war. But it did, of course, touch on not only um, a lot of the uh, sort of insecurities or uncertainties or in some cases prejudices that people had, but also it really served as a test case for how models of Western liberal secularism are able to manage or negotiate these kinds uh, of controversies. And so what I ultimately uh, argue in the case of the uh, the Niqab affair from 2015 is that while they had very, very different positions, uh, Harper uh, and Trudeau, they both relied on a version of what uh, scholar Elizabeth Shockman heard calls Judeo-Christian secularism. And that is to say, they lean into different versions of this idea that Western cultures are grounded in a certain foundation, a certain set of values. And this ties in a lot with the rhetoric of Western civilization that from a more strategic and let's say, for the sake of argument, conservative point of view, although many liberals hold this position as well, that certain versions of Islam and veiling are, are anti-women. Uh, therefore, they don't align with secular values. Therefore, we need to push back against them. On the other hand, this rhetoric of choice, uh, more commonly associated with, associated with a, a sort of a liberal, uh, a multicultural point of view, also leans into this broader accommodationist notion of Judeo-Christian secularism, where different groups are tolerated for their religious differences 
if they are, and this is crucial, able to be recognized as falling within the acceptable range of uh, practices and beliefs. And I mean, I can say a lot more uh, about uh, the contents of this chapter, but one thing I really want to sort of uh, put a button on here is that what was fascinating about Zunira Isak, and I I looked at a number of other cases involving uh, the veil and the niqab in particular, what was fascinating about Zunira Isak was that she directly challenged the government at the time and was constantly appearing on the news, uh, in print, uh, and performing her performing her perspective in such a way that really clashed with the dominant narrative about uh, Muslim women in general and niqab wearing women in particular as submissive, docile, uh, as being you know forced or compelled by their husbands or their religion to wear the niqab um, by pushing back and actively combating uh, these uh, uh, these particular uh, laws. Isak really threw a wrench into the conversation about you know how we we normally talk about these sorts of issues, and so it was a really interesting entry point for me to think about uh, some of the contradictions uh, in secularism and 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 to really go back and and see what are those what are those go to justifications that we use when these controversies arise and 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 do they actually hold up uh, in each and every case? I think that that example works very well to demonstrate what you're talking about. What sort of theoretical approaches help to inform the way you engage these different examples that you study? There's at least two theories uh, that I want to flag here, although probably several more. So the first I already touched on by Elizabeth Shackman Hurd, and she makes a useful distinction uh, in her 2008 book, The Politics of Secularism and International Relations, uh, between Judeo-Christian secularism and laicite. It's a bit of a broad generalization, and, and, and some people have critiqued it and nuanced it further, but the basic idea is trying to understand dominant expressions of secular governance. So on the one hand, as mentioned before, secular governments, as you might see in the United States and much of Canada, that refers back to a certain, quote-unquote, Judeo-Christian heritage in, in positive and laudatory ways and uh, explicitly states that this is, you know, a, a part of who we are and a part of how we do governance uh, versus laicite, which is basically a French term meaning secularism, uh, common in France, but also the Canadian province of Quebec, uh, which draws a harder line in the sand between the state and quote unquote religion, where there's this perception that religious ideas, religious speech, religious forms of dress are threats to the unity of the state and therefore need to be managed a little bit more strongly, a little bit more strictly than other things that we might find in society. And so when we turn to look at, for example, the recent bans on certain quote-unquote religious symbols in the Canadian province of Quebec, we see this this second idea of secularism, laicite, at work. So that's one thing that I'm, I'm working with in this chapter. Uh, Another concept that I find really, really useful is uh, a fairly recent book by Joan Wellick Scott called Sex and Secularism. Um, And she traces in this book a fairly lengthy genealogy of the concept of secularism, how it has been used in Euro-Western spaces, uh, with an emphasis on on, on France uh, in particular, leading up into the present. And one of the main things that really, really animates her thesis in this book is that 
the emphasis on gender equality as this universal aspect of secularism really only dates back to the early 1990s. Uh, she shows in her work that prior to this time, the idea of gender equality was not something that got paired with uh, secularism. It was something that came about uh, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and very much in the context of this discourse of a clash of civilizations, which, of course, became even heightened after the 9-11 attacks. And so I, I really draw on Scott's work to try to show and unpack some of the ways in which this idea of linking secularism and gender equality is very much a recent phenomenon and one that when you start to unpack a number of examples um, is quite haphazard and sloppy and is often about different governments working out conflicts over other things. So I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, one more thing I should mention uh, theoretically that, that might be of uh, interest to listeners and, and, and perhaps students uh, in particular is that drawing on theories of uh, uh, semiotics, uh, uh, drawing on theories of Orientalism and the tradition of Said that focus on representation in the form of tropes that have come to inform the ways in which certain groups are signified in the popular imagination. I look at, for example, drawing on the work of uh, Lila Ahmed, um, how conceptions of veiling in Islam have a very long and, of course, very complicated history that do not signify historically and across cultures the dominant things that we tend to associate with veiling today, uh, namely the, the oppression of women, the idea that Islam is an oppressive religion, or on the other side of that, uh, that it is simply a matter of a woman's choice. She looks at, for example, how uh, many early impressions of uh, veiling had a lot to do with uh, one's status or, or, or social class, for example. Um, I also look at, and so without going into you know, too many details about that historical past, it's a useful brief genealogy for setting the table in such a way that we can clearly see that these contemporary understandings or representations of Muslims and Muslim women are not things that have been applied in all times and places, but rather are contingent, but rather unfold in relation to the interests of different social actors, oftentimes in response to certain significant political and cultural events like the September 11th attacks. And so I also talk about how a lot of attention was paid to Muslim women, particularly in Afghanistan, following the September 11th attacks, how this idea of liberating Muslim women was a central talking point of the Bush administration that continues actually to this day with the recent withdrawal. So this idea of associating unveiling of lifting the burqa, which often gets conflated with the niqab, interestingly, uh, in this rhetoric. Uh, it, you find in a lot of these early, uh, or I should say post 9-11 newspaper articles, associations between uh, um, unveiling and freedom, liberation, uh, modernity, and the veil itself gets associated with terrorism, fundamentalism, or the specter of Sharia law, such that in some discourses you see in the West, the very presence of a veil, which is, of course, a very visible marker of Muslimness, gets conflated with this idea that the West is being taken over, that Sharia law is coming to the West. And so I unpack a lot of the sort of the images, ideas, and tropes that came about in the post-9-11 period 
once again, as a way to really clarify what the dominant ideas and images are that we tend to associate with Muslim women, with the idea that that often leads or colors the ways in which we actually engage in conversations uh, about these issues. And as a slight contrast to that, I also talk about um, a really interesting concept from Evelyn Alsatani, who wrote a book called um, Arabs and Muslims in the Media, Race and Representation After 9-11 in 2012. And she draws on the work of Mahmoud Mamdani, whose uh, 2004 book, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, goes into some considerable depth about the ways in which Muslims get constructed as either good or, on the other hand, bad, uh, usually based on their adherence to certain Western secular liberal principles. If you look like us, if you do the things that we do, then perhaps you're going to fall into the category of good Muslim. By contrast, if you don't, then you're going to fall into the category of bad Muslim. I'm generalizing a bit, but that's the basic idea. So what also Downey talks about in her book is that she started to watch a number of shows featuring Muslims in the post 9-11 period. And she expected to see a lot of racialized tropes, a lot of negative depictions of Mamdani's bad Muslim. But what she found instead were an overwhelming amount of depictions of, quote unquote, good Muslims. Now, she calls these depictions simplified, complex representations. Uh, complex because they're, they're more nuanced than a lot of tropes in the past where uh, uh, Muslims and Muslim women were, were, were voiceless and they, they sort of embodied certain stereotypes or caricatures, but simplified in the sense that they're legible to a Western audience, right? They, they do the things and say the things that are like us, that we can recognize. And so that idea of simplified complex representations is a useful one because I think it touches on the, the other side of the coin, that oftentimes when talking about uh, Muslims in Islam or, or, or any group for that matter, uh, in popular culture and news media, people tend to rely on these shorthand concepts that can be easily identifiable as either uh, a, a, you know, a victim or a villain, as someone we can identify with or someone we have to reject. And what often gets lost in that process is, of course, the incredible complexity and nuance of any type of identity, uh, which never fits the mold of these simplified, complex uh, representations. And so one more thing I'll mention that I, that I do uh, in this chapter, I, I look at a number of instances of uh, court cases in Europe in countries like uh, uh, France uh, and Britain and uh, uh, Belgium, uh, among a number of, uh, of others where dating back to the early 2000s, there were various attempts to either limit or ban certain religious symbols. And interestingly, in almost all of these cases, it started with something like the niqab, or in some cases, the, uh, the, the hijab when it came to uh, uh, girls in public schools uh, in France, as a sort of extreme or limit case that wasn't to be tolerated. And what's really interesting to me, or I should say, you know, one of many things that's really uh, interesting to me in looking at these discourses is that oftentimes when various governments proposed to ban the niqab or occasionally the hijab, they would get hit with backlash. Uh, they would be called uh, anti-Muslim, racist, Islamophobic, and so forth. And what often happened in the wake of them being called these things 
is a readjustment uh, on the government level as to what their justifications were. So I draw, for example, on this case from uh, Reus, Spain. Uh, it's in the, uh, the state of Catalonia back from uh, 2010. And there was an attempt during that time of a uh, conservative-led government to ban niqabs in public spaces. So some backlash came. It was called uh, Islamophobic. And the party that objected to it uh, was a leftist party um, that was very much persecuted during the uh, Franco regime, which lasted from uh, 1936 to, uh, my date's right, somewhere around 1980. But their reasons had to do with securitization and the heavy hand in the state. Uh, it didn't have to do with religion at all. At the same time, the more conservative Catholic uh, party was in opposition to the kneecap, but in the process, they really, really emphasized how the hijab was a part of their secular culture. It was a religious symbol and they, they identified the kneecap as a cultural symbol. So that's a really interesting strategic move to call something cultural and not religious as a way to push it outside of an officially protected uh, form of dress. And they very quickly uh, came to a compromise where um, they wouldn't ban the kneecap in particular, but they would ban all forms of, of masking one's face in public. And just for a good measure, they threw in uh, no public drinking and, and uh, no public nudity. And so this is one of several examples I come across where the fear or I should say the charge of Islamophobia or anti-Muslim rhetoric forces governments to rethink their initial justifications in such a way that they take on new meanings, right? The reason for banning it uh, uh, gets, gets rethought. And so uh, no longer, for example, in the case of Spain, is the niqab considered a threat to Western civilization. That was some of the rhetoric that was trotted out, but it becomes more of a security issue. And not just Muslim women, but anyone wearing a mask. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, uh, during this process, quite interestingly, uh, there was this strong emphasis on the hijab as something that is within the realm of religious freedom. And it's really interesting to think about how certain modes of, of dress in particular uh, become excluded or conversely normalized in the Western imagination through these conflicts that play out uh, in public. And so the last thing I look at uh, in that chapter uh, is a series of bills that took place in Quebec uh, starting in 2010. So there was a proposed bill, Bill 94, uh, by the Quebec Liberal Party, and that required women to unveil their faces when working uh, in the public sector. So this was a NECA bet. Uh, that bill failed to pass. Following that, there was a widely publicized bill called Bill 60 that was also called the Charter of Secular Values. And there was a lengthier title that, and I'm not going to remember it all here, but it said something to the effect of the Charter of Secular Values and blah, 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 enforcing equality between men and women. So the initial bill was very clearly signaling Muslim women in particular under this assumption that wearing the veil was somehow contrary to equality. And you recall that Stephen Harper's justification for banning the niqab was that it was anti-women, right? And so this invocation of gender equality, going back to Joan Wallet Scott, is very much being invoked here. But what the Quebec government did with Bill 60, the Charter of Secular Values, was they didn't want to appear xenophobic. So as a way to combat that, they said, well, okay, we're going to ban all, quote unquote, religious symbols from the public sphere. 
which included uh, sick turbans, which included uh, 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 Jewish kippahs. And for good measure, they said, and large crosses, not small ones. And there was a lot of, a lot of fun memes during that time of you know, like, well, what, what happens when Elton John comes to town wearing a giant cross on stage? Is, is he going to be banned? Uh, and interestingly, um, there is a large cross on top of Mont Royal uh, in Montreal. And during that process, uh, the government in question, and this continues to this day to be debated, classified it as a cultural symbol, a part of our heritage and not a religious symbol. And so, you know, here we see some of the back and forth or, or gerrymandering, if you like, over the meaning of these symbols. What is religious? What is cultural? Um, and and in, in, in investigating uh, these particular cases, I think we can see how a lot of the interests of various political actors are disproportionately influential in how we come to classify or perceive whether something is cultural or religious. Uh, very quickly, fast forward to 2017, there was uh, Bill 62. This also uh, uh, was a narrow ban focusing on Muslim women and uh, uh, the niqab in particular. Uh, they weren't allowed to ride the bus. They couldn't access certain social services. And this led to a lot of backlash. A lot of people were wearing uh, ski masks, for example, on buses saying, uh, you know, in, in, in solidarity and in protest, this failed to pass. Then finally, in March of 2019, there was Bill 21. Uh, and Bill 21 went back to the wide ban, although limited in certain cases to people who work in the public service. Um, and in some cases, if you were already wearing a, uh, working a job like say a teacher, for example, and you're wearing a hijab, you would be grandfathered in. It wouldn't apply to you. But anyone who was newly applying to become a teacher, a lawyer, a judge, among other professions, could not wear their quote-unquote uh, religious symbol. And this became a huge controversy because it was, as a, an article from The Atlantic pointed out, the first country in North America, uh, and, and I believe the sort of Euro-West sphere uh, of nation states to effectively ban religious symbols uh, from certain public spaces and certain public sector uh, work. And so what I try to do in this chapter, uh, among other things, as mentioned, is to um, show the ways in which gender equality gets used as a form of justification, uh, but then often shifts and changes to things like security or uh, state neutrality uh, when it comes to this move from just banning symbols identified with Islam to banning all symbols. We want to be neutral, and therefore we're not going to privilege any symbol being represented uh, in the public sphere. And I guess the last point I'll make on, uh, on that chapter is this rhetorical move that we see between uh, calling something religious and calling something cultural. And what, I, what I'm really interested in getting at here is how contemporary conflicts involving Muslims and Muslim women uh, in particular are really, really interesting litmus tests for the ways in which religion gets constructed both at the state level, uh, the way that, of course, secularism gets constructed at the state level, and how that comes to inform the general cultural sense of what these symbols are, what they mean, how we are to understand them moving forward. So much like the familiar images or tropes of Muslim women, uh, of which we can see you know, in Said's work and a much longer genealogy, uh, that I talked about in relation to uh, Lila Ahmed, uh, so too can we see this changing view of certain symbols as religious or cultural uh, based on different interests of different uh, uh, political parties and social actors um, trying to 
curry advantage uh, uh, and, and gain a certain victory uh, in particular uh, a political context. Oh, and the last thing I should mention here is, um, you know, one of the reasons that a number of commentators pointed out uh, that the government of Quebec decided to draw upon this religious symbols issue is that if we go back to the 1970s, there was a growing separatist movement to separate from Canada. It culminated in 1995 in a referendum that barely lost. And so Quebec did not separate, but it came very, very close, like 0.5 of percentage from separating from the rest of the country. And as many observers point out, after that time, there was an influx of immigrants from North Africa, for example, of a Muslim background, uh, because Quebec wanted to prioritize French speakers. So this not only created a conflict within Quebec in terms of this in influence of uh, cultures and cultural practices that are uh, not like the Catholic norm that Quebec was used to, but it also represented uh, a new wedge issue for them because in mounting these various uh, 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 challenges or, or, or bills, if you like, uh, to ban so-called religious symbols, the Quebec government was constantly provoking the Canadian state to come in with the Supreme Court and say, this is a violation of Supreme Court. We will not let this stand. And so then that became something for the Quebec government to say, oh, hey, look at, look at what the rest of Canada is doing. Look at, look at what they're telling us to do. Uh, and, and, and that served their political interests in that moment. Uh, and I could say a lot more about that. I'll probably leave that to the side or, or, or encourage you to, uh, to check it out in the book itself. But uh, some of those broader political interests are also significant to consider uh, when thinking about what motivates these particular bands. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. You discuss the secular in relationship to ex-Muslims and then the relationship between the viewpoints of ex-Muslims and the movement of atheism. Could you say a little bit more about how these things influence each other and how that ties into the secular? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as I mentioned at the, the start of our chat today, um, the beginning of my, my master's degree uh, corresponded with uh, the rise of, of what became known as, as the New Atheist Movement. I was very interested in that uh, from the jump. And so I've followed developments uh, and, and written about uh, atheism, popular atheism, non-religion, how that relates to secularism and secularity. And there's, there's a growing literature on that that uh, I think is uh, nicely embodied with the uh, journal Secularism and Non-Religion, which is very much a product or an outgrowth of uh, the increased interest in atheism as it relates to secularism uh, and, and non-religion. And so uh, if we're thinking about this uh, theoretically, I think it's important to point out that it's a, a relatively new phenomenon, not the study of secularism per se, uh, but the interest of secularism and non-religion, pairing, pairing those, those two things together. And I guess what really sparked my interest in writing this chapter um, was a podcast called Polite Conversations. Uh, it's hosted by a woman named Aina, who is of Pakistani heritage. Uh, she was born and raised in uh, Jeddah, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, albeit in an American compound. And she moved to Toronto, uh, Canada, where, where I'm from, um, in her late teens, early 20s. So she started to identify as an atheist during that time. And when she started her podcast in 2016, 
she was more or less in line with what I would broadly call a, a new atheist type uh, ideology. But 2016, as we know, also coincided with the rise of Donald Trump and with what I mentioned before, this idea that a politics of, of transgression, this sort of anti-political correctness, pro-free speech uh, a movement that migrated from online into the general public really, really came to inform a lot of conversations and discourses. And Ina, very quickly in her podcast, maybe a year or so in, went from a fairly hard line, albeit, I would say, pretty open-minded new atheist type of perspective to calling into question what had happened with, with uh, what is commonly referred to as a movement atheism or just popular atheist movements as they exist in online spaces and as they are represented through popular figures. So here we might think of Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett, among a host of others who have written popular books, appeared on, on, on YouTube channels and in, in various news interviews and so forth. And it come to signify or represent the face of a certain uh, type of, of atheism. And for Ina, she had this sort of crisis of faith. She said um, most of the atheists that she had lauded for a number of years didn't really seem to embody the type of secular values that she upheld and, and identified with. So things like skepticism, equality rights, uh, a rigorous commitment to, to self-critique. Uh, and so this crisis of identity for Ina very much spurred me to think about how secularism gets used as a form of identification. Uh, of course, secularism can be used to describe a mode of political orientation or ideology that both self-identified religious and self-identified non-religious people alike may embody. But typically speaking, when people use it as a form of identity or identification, when they say, I am secular, they often mean although not always, that they are non-religious. And for Ina, uh, and certainly for a certain tradition of people who have written about this concept, secularism does embody certain values, certain ideas, in an attempt to construct a particular worldview. So here we might think of secular humanism in particular as an attempt to say, well, you know, we, we are not, quote unquote, religious, we don't believe in gods or any of the moral dictates that come from above, but we rather believe instead that these come from human beings, from human societies, and that we have the ability to constantly reconstruct them for ourselves. So this crisis of uh, identification for Ina very much you know, encouraged me to dig a little bit deeper uh, into some of these broader issues. And so you know, I talk about how when the new atheists first came onto the scene, starting in 2004 with Sam Harris's book, uh, The End of Faith, which was shortly followed by uh, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, among a number of other books, there was this very prominent idea in their texts that religion was going to fade away. So here we can detect echoes of secularization theory. And a particularly virulent uh, and dogmatic one, there was this sense, and um, I think uh, to paraphrase Sam Harris from his 2006 book, A Letter to a Christian Nation, he says something to the effect in talking to an imaginary Christian, he says, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. Um, in the fullness of time, in the war between science and religion, one side is going to win and one side is going to lose. Right? And you can see that in the title of his, his first book, The End of Faith, as well. This uh, almost evangelical advocacy for trying to bring religion to an end. And this is something that scholars of religion commented on and critiqued 
as being very much in the vein of this modernist, Eurocentric, colonial, teleological view that history is unfolding in a certain way, and that it is naturally going to develop towards this trajectory where religion dies or fades away. And so these thinkers, in some ways, might have thought of themselves as uh, as a vanguard, so to speak. But as Ina and a number of her guests point out in their conversations, you can only shit on religion for so long before it becomes repetitive, before it becomes stale, right? Uh, critiquing something ad infinitum is very circular, uh, especially for people who have been in the game for a while, who have heard these critiques. It might be appealing to younger people who haven't, but for those who have been around for a while, uh, it becomes problematic. And so one of the shifts that I note with the new atheist thinkers is that whereas in the mid to late 2000s, they really, really focused on this idea of rationalism and reason and how embracing those values and principles was going to lead to a new renaissance. And you, you see this, for example, you know, in uh, uh, books that are written by these thinkers. Um, uh, Dawkins writes uh, one on uh, evolution. The name of it is escaping me right now, but it's, it's very much this sort of a presentation of evolution as a new form of religion, right? Where engaging with the cosmos, engaging with these ideas are a way to re-enchant one's own relationship to the natural world as opposed to the supernatural, right? But as these debates grew stale, I noticed that thinkers like Sam Harris uh, and Richard Dawkins in particular were shifting more towards culture wars in their rhetoric. Uh, they were often called out for being Islamophobic or misogynistic and not without justification. And a lot of their alliances and public commentary were often aligning in interesting ways with these politics of transgression that I talked about before, pushing back against the excesses of, for example, critical race theory, or pushing back against what they perceived to be um, new forms of gender identity, and tr including transgender identities that were contrary to biological science, that were uh, a part of the quote-unquote woke brigade, that were embodying uh, this idea of social justice warriors. And so part of the way in which their public personas uh, carried over or transformed after critiquing religion as thoroughly as they did, uh, was to jump into these culture wars battles, which for Ina and her podcast was very, very influential on a lot of young atheists, uh, particularly people like ex-Muslims who were looking to move away from what was often a very uh, a negative experience, a very sort of coercive experience with Islam in their own lives towards something different. And so latching on to some of the rhetoric of secular liberalism was a part of that, but that came part and parcel with this more let's say, right-leaning cultural politics of transgression that was not so much interested in, as I mentioned before, things like equality rights, skepticism, and self-critique, which Ina upheld as central to atheist and secular identities. So I really try to explore some of the breakdown or confusion or fluidity, that's probably the better word, fluidity of these forms of identification as they interact with different sets of interests, different cultural developments, uh, and of course, different voices uh, in these online spaces. So, uh, yeah, just so I don't forget, uh, another point that I think is really important to mention here is there was a turning point with new atheist figures, uh, starting with Sam Harris in 2014. 
Uh, he co-wrote a book in the form of a dialogue with uh, a British self-described secular Muslim thinker, Majid Nawaz, uh, who was a former uh, Muslim radical, and he became a reformer. Um, their book was called Islam and the Future of Tolerance, uh, a Dialogue. And what that marked for me, uh, and certainly for Harris, was the shift from saying religion poisons everything to, uh, quote, Richard, uh, or, or pardon me, Christopher Hitchens from the subtitle of his book, uh, written in 2007, God is Not Great, Our Religion Poisons Everything. So Harris is shifting from that idea towards one whereby the way to deal with religion in general and Islam in particular is to engage in alliances with secular liberal Muslims who embody Western secular values. And so part of what I argue in this chapter is that although that's a rhetorical shift, Substantively, uh, substantively speaking, it's actually not much of a shift. Uh, underlying what they are ultimately arguing is that a certain understanding of Western secular liberal values, a certain conception of Western civilization is the foundation point that people ought to adhere to. If on the one hand, in their early stages, um, they can't be converted to atheism or non-religion, well then... The move is let's focus on moderate Muslims who can and carry forward our battle that way. And I look at a, a couple of other popular thinkers like Ayan Hirsi Ali, who was uh, uh, arguably the first and only ex-Muslim whose voice got elevated through a number of best-selling books. And, and she similarly in a 2015 book uh, called, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name, uh, a Heretic, uh, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now. She makes a similar move by saying uh, there are what she calls Mecca and Medina Muslims. Uh, Medina Muslims are, are the violent ones. They're the fundamentalists. And the Mecca ones, well, they're the ones that are winnable. They're the ones that we can drag over to a moderate position, what she calls reformed Muslims uh, that align with secular, liberal, and Western values. Uh, I also talk about another popular ex-Muslim author, uh, Ali Rizvi. Um, whose book, and I'm blanking on the title of it right now for some reason, um, The Atheist Muslim, that's it, The Atheist Muslim. And it's, it, it's blurbed on the back by six or seven authors who are a who's who of uh, a new atheist uh, uh, celebrities. And one thing that he does in this book is he engages with uh, uh, the culture wars. Uh, he reproduces a lot of the ideas that the new atheists uh, tend to argue for. But one of the things that he does in the book that I find really interesting is that he talks about in how more secular and left-leaning spaces, there's a tendency to not want to criticize Islam or Muslims. And this has become a bit of a trope uh, uh, online and in news media. And in my estimation, it, it, it certainly often functions as a bit of a caricature for uh, a lot of legitimate concerns uh, that people have when it comes to for example, the so-called war on terror, the long history of colonialism, uh, ongoing instances of xenophobia and racial abuse, and so on and so forth. But there is certainly something to Rizvi's critique. And, and part of what I try to uh, unpack, however briefly, uh, in that chapter is that for a lot of ex-Muslims, there appears to be not only anger and resentment towards the uh, conservative and restrictive versions of Islam that they grew up with, but a lot of frustration that their desire to lash out against their former religion is not necessarily met 
by a lot of Western liberals or, or leftists, people on that, that general spectrum. And so that's used as part of an explanation by, by myself and a few others to explain why there is this right-leaning shift uh, among a lot of ex-Muslims, precisely because, um, at least in the early stages after leaving Islam, there is a warm embrace from these communities who are willing to do and say the kind of things against Islam that the, broadly speaking, liberal left is not able to do. But on the other hand, I also talk about how I think part of the problem with the liberal left spectrum of critique, or in some cases, lack of critique, can be thought about in relation to a much broader problem, which is, to simplify it, people in the West really don't know anything about Islam. <laughs> they really don't know anything about Hinduism or a variety of other, quote unquote, religious or cultural traditions. And in many ways, we are forced to engage with these, these tropes, with these shorthands uh, that really don't get us very far beyond binaries, beyond caricatures. And so it seems to me that there is a very real sort of conceptual impasse when thinking about these issues in the public realm. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the medium itself that we are engaging with doesn't really allow us to move beyond, much beyond what Al-Satani would call simplified complex representations. Before we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on and what projects you have on the horizon? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, apart from working on uh, essays uh, uh, here and there uh, on, on Islam, atheism, I also look at indigenous traditions uh, in, in North America. I'm also working on a book called Islam uh, According to Google News. And what I try to do in this book is I, I look at a discrete data set over the course of three months uh, of articles that deal with the concept of Islam. And so I try to both show how certain ideas and tropes in the Euro West surrounding Islam get reproduced in these spaces. But I also try to complicate the ways in which scholars talk about these representations by providing something contemporary within a narrow time frame uh, in order to to highlight uh, a number of things that are that are missed uh, when we when we compare uh, uh, different things in this case news media uh, and I should say not just from from North America but uh, but from around the world so hopefully that'll be out in the uh, the summer of 2020 or 2020 oh, uh, unless you have a time machine uh, 2022 <laughs> that's what I well yes we will have to be on the lookout for that and hopefully we'll be able to have you back on the Religious Studies Project to talk about that once it comes out. I'd love to. Thank you so much for being here. This has been fantastic. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Andy and Matt, for that great discussion of how these terms come to mean what they mean and why they're used in ways that are unexpected. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your support. The best way to financially support us and allow us to do the work that we need to do is to head over to patreon.com slash project RS and perhaps a monthly donation would go a long way. We have hosting costs and editing costs and transcription costs, and you can help defray all of that to make sure that the labor that we're doing in the academy is paid work. If you'd like to support us and 
right now, financial support is not something you can do. What you can do is to be an advocate for us and share the things that we produce on your social media. If you're on Twitter, you can do that at, at Project RS. If you're on Instagram, you can do that at Project underscore RS underscore. And if you're on Facebook or LinkedIn, we also have those and we love to promote it on all the networks that are available. And until next time, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.